It's on the tip of our tongues. It's what motivates us to go and to do and to be who God has called us uh, to be. And that is that Jesus is our anchor. He is our hope. And that's the only hope that we have to bring to this world is the hope of Jesus. Because that is our only hope. Even though we may be blessed in our circumstances or our situations, our hope is in Jesus. And as we come now to this point of looking at God's word, I want to remind you of a profound thought. A.W. Tozer wrote this about God's word. He said, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him and that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. And so my prayer this morning is as we encounter God's word, that, that this morning we, our hearts will not be bent towards God's word exclusively. That our destination is not the word of God, but that we will see God's word as the means by which we, we enter into the rest of God as the supreme destination of our souls. That the word of God reveals to us who God is and then we really know him. Not just know things about him or know his, his, the thoughts about who Jesus is and who that person is. But that we will rest in the truth of, who, of knowing Jesus. Of knowing him more. And that we will find in that place and rest in the truth that Jesus is so worthy. He is so worth it. He is worth our worship. He is worth our sacrifice. He is worth our love, our devotion. He is worth our very lives. That is the God that the word teaches us about. And so as we come to the end of this past year, as I was seeking God's direction for our church and asked the elders as well to be praying about where God, we, we don't want just truths from your word. We want the truth that you need to reveal to our people for this season of life. And we kept coming back to the thought of prayer as we, I've shared with you a few weeks ago. And as you know, this year, our desire as a body is to be led to be a people that would seek God through prayer and then follow him as the spirit leads. That we would not operate on our own agenda, but we will operate on a kingdom agenda and we will trust and follow wherever God leads us. And we can have confidence to follow him in those ways because we have confidently sought the God who reveals himself to us as we have sought him in prayer. That's our, our premise behind that. It's not just a, 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 a theme or a motto. It's who we want to become. We want it to be the essence of who we are. And so as I thought, as I sought God in this to know where he wanted to take us in his word, my heart kept going back to the book of Nehemiah. And in this great book written by Nehemiah himself, we not only see the heart of brokenness and prayer that Nehemiah possesses or possessed, but we also see the result of seeking God, which is restoration as we seek him. And so I want to ask that you take your Bibles and look in the, uh, the first chapter of Nehemiah where we're going to join together this morning. As we approach Nehemiah, we're going to see the description that Nehemiah gives of the actual restoration of a city. The city was broken and was destroyed 
And we're going to join together to actually see the description of the restoration of a city. And to see deeper that this historical account, this historical account of the restoration of a physical city actually serves to us as the symbol of the spiritual restoration the spiritual restoration that is ushered in when the body of Christ lives as the body of Christ within the city. Sort of a city within a city, if you will. And so when we come to the place of recognition, when we see this as our role in the city, that God has currently placed us here to be the agents of restoration of his kingdom, when we come to that place, we see that God is calling his body to not function solely as a subculture within the larger culture, but instead to be the catalyst, to be the catalyst in which God causes a metamorphosis in our culture, that we're not creating this subculture, but as hearts and lives are being changed, we are seeing a paradigm shift in the culture as a whole, as God is moving in our hearts. And that through this, this resonation of a kingdom movement this restoration will, will cause the, 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 the spread of God's truth to go to the ends of the earth. That this will become more than just about our city. But this will become about God's glory going to the ends of the earth. And that we see through a kingdom lens, when we look through that kingdom lens, then we will see the broader spectrum of the kingdom of God and the kingdom that he is desiring to restore in all of creation. People from all places. That's the beauty of what Nehemiah is going to foreshadow for us. Less of, about just the historical account of the restoration of a city, which it is, but also that we're going to see the restoration of the kingdom of God foreshadowed through this story of Nehemiah. And so as we look at Nehemiah for the next couple of months, I want us to grasp three overarching goals that I pray we will gather from this period of history. There's three things that are going to kind of serve as our overarching framework in which we're going to kind of hang the details of the story of Nehemiah on. First of all, I want us to see that God's people, our, our response will be that God's people will seek individual and collective restoration. That we're going to look at the story of a, of a restoration that occurred for this city. And through that, that collectively and individually, you and I will seek restoration that our hearts will be bent towards God continuing to sanctify us, continuing to do a work in our hearts to transform us, to change us from, from within. And my prayer is that through this individually, you will be challenged to greater depths of prayer, that you will be challenged to greater depths of discipline in your faith, that, that, that your walk with Christ, you will see it for the calling that it is and not a casual thing that you just do. It'll be the calling on your life holistically. That you will, have, you will see greater depths in the study of God's word that will lead you to an understanding of the king and then a continued restoration of your heart. That you will pray for God to move you to compassion for his kingdom. That if you don't have a heart broken for those who do not know him, you will pray that he will give you a bigger heart that others may know him. And then you will be motivated to a different agenda that you'll develop in that place. But then also not just individually, collectively. I pray that God will use this to collectively restore us as a church. You know, that we will be challenged to seek restoration. You know, for all of creation, through God working through us as his church, spreading his fame and glory throughout the world. That we will be an active presence in our culture, both here and wherever God may lead us. 
so that God may use us to point to the only one worthy of glory and honor. There is only one who is worthy. And I pray that we will see that as we are collectively yet individually seeking restoration. But there's a second thing that Nehemiah is going to show us, and that is that God's purpose and vision will be held high as the catalyst for restoration. So we're not seeking restoration as if we have placed ourselves in the center and we are evaluating everything that has to do with who we are and we are saying, all right, we want to change this about myself. I want to change this about myself. No, we will see that the way in which the catalyst for restoration will occur in all people will occur when we look at God's purpose and vision. We want his purpose. We pray for his will to come, his will to be done. That's our prayer. And so we will see through the study of Nehemiah that he was not operating on his own agenda. This was not about Nehemiah. He was not seeking God so that his personal plans might be fulfilled. But we are going to see that Nehemiah's strength of character was not driven by his own strength or determination. But we're going to see that Nehemiah trusted in the purpose and the plan of God as it was revealed to him through God's word. He trusted in his plan. Nehemiah saw the purpose of God. He had a proper perspective of God. And he knew that he could trust God to answer his prayers because he knew from the study of God's word what God had promised to do for his nation. And so his determination was in the purpose of God as God had promised the nation of Israel. And we're going to see through Nehemiah's example that as we seek the will of God and seek him through prayer and the word, then this recognition will ignite a movement, a kingdom movement. It will catalyze others to stand for the cause of all that is good and right and sacred. So we want God's purpose and vision to be the catalyst for this restoration that we're talking about as we'll see through Nehemiah. But then Nehemiah is going to give us a third overarching thing. And that is that God's presence will be seen through Jesus, the greater Nehemiah. That we will not stop with just seeing an account of a faithful man named Nehemiah. And we will not stop with just seeing the restoration of a physical city. But we will see that this is all pointing to Jesus, the greater Nehemiah. And this is pointing to the restoration of the the kingdom of God, not just the restoration of a city. This is about God doing a work and being faithful and and, and living out of his attributes of who he is, his character of who who he is and what his nature is. You know, whereas Nehemiah is going to lead the effort to rebuild a city... Jesus is rebuilding his kingdom and he's doing it through us, his church. And he is restoring what was broken and destroyed and laid to waste. Like we're going to see that this city was broken and destroyed and laid to waste. And as it was, it was reconstructed, we're going to see that God is doing that once again as he is restoring his people. So as we encounter Nehemiah, and I'm kind of I'm throwing a lot of just backstory that you've got to know to understand contextually what God wants to teach us through this. And so as, as we look at this, I want to give you a little background briefly on Israel's history. So don't check out on me. This is a history lesson, but don't go to sleep on me. This is extremely important to understand what Nehemiah is going to teach to us. So to set the stage, I just want to give you some kind of paint with broad strokes what, the, what was happening in the nation of Israel and how they had gotten to the place that they find themselves. So if you remember from the story of God, God out of his own doings chose Abraham. And he chose Abraham's family. Way back in the beginning, he said, Abraham, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to ultimately not only bless you and your family, but the whole nation of Israel. You're going to be my chosen people. And he, he, he elects Abraham to be that person. 
And so they understand the promise. And Israel understands the promise that God has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. But yet in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people have found themselves in captivity to the nation of Egypt. So those who were free, those who were called to be God's people, now find themselves in captivity to a foreign nation. But God would hold true on his promises because he's a faithful God, because he's a God who honors his covenant. And so God is going to call the nation of Israel under the leadership of Moses out of the rule of Egypt, as you know, and they would, he would provide for them through the crossing of the Red Sea and he would protect them from their enemies and he would lead them up to the border of the land that had been promised to them. God had said, I'm going to give you a perfect land flowing with milk and honey and he leads them right up to that place. But at the cusp of this deliverance, as they are so close to being geographically and then also spiritually where God was leading them to, the people of Israel doubted the goodness of God. They doubted his grace. They doubted his power and provision. They would say, man, if we could just be back in Egypt, at least we had food to eat. And now we're just wandering around here. So God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. This covenant keeping God who has led his people to the cusp of the place in which he wanted to deliver them. They take their eyes off of him and they wander for 40 years, but he does not take his eyes off of them. He is a faithful God. And so under Joshua, since Moses had disobeyed God and was told that he would never see the promised land, because of Moses' disobedience, God leads the people into the promised land. Most of the generation who had doubted would die never seeing the promised land. They would never see what God had promised for them. But God would be faithful. And he would lead the people to where he had promised. He drives out any nations that opposes them. And he would establish the kingdom for them where he would reign. Well, the Israelites, as they normally would, they begin to look around. They begin to do this comparison thing. And they would begin to wondering, why do all the nations, other nations besides us, if we're your chosen people, how come they have a king and we don't have a king? We want a king. Well, Jesus, you know, God would reveal to them that and tell them that, the, the, that this is, you know, you don't have a king, you have me, but God would give them the desires of their heart, even though it was against their will. And he gives them a king. And he gives them a pretty solid looking king. You know, he says he chooses the, basically the epitome of all men by choosing Saul, who according to the Bible, he was tall, dark, and handsome, you know, just muscles on top of muscles. He was what they pictured a physical, strong king would look like and Saul would eventually though disobey God he would offer a burnt offering sacrifice in the place in which Samuel the priest should have and God through Samuel would tell Saul that he would be replaced by another king because of your disobedience Saul you will be replaced by another king as you know from our reading this king would be David from the story we see that, and we, we looked at that in our kingdom prophecy, that from the root of Jesse, a branch would spring forth and produce fruit. Well, that branch would come from the line of David. You kind of picture David like Saul, but the exact opposite. You know, we go from a foot taller guy, monster muscle guy, to a harp player who is hanging out by the sheep, with the sheep. Jesse didn't even bring David before Samuel because he was irrelevant. 
It's quite interesting. The upside down kingdom that God was establishing. He would not even, Jesse would bring all of his big stud sons in front of him. And he would go, none of these are them. Is, is this it? Well, there's, you know, David, go get him. So now David was the king. Now he was, he was a, a, a shepherd. He protected the sheep. You know, he, is, he eventually would kill Goliath and he would be the ruler over Israel. But David would eventually die. So we're covering the Old Testament, I know, in, 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 in real broad details. But David eventually dies and he turns the kingdom over to his son Solomon. Solomon would build the temple that God had instructed. He would build the temple and peace is over the nation of Israel. Israel is now flourishing. They're becoming this national powerhouse. And after Solomon's reign, we see that the nation of Israel once again falls away and actually would split into two kingdoms. You would have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be called Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was an absolute wreck. You know, they had wicked king after wicked king. It was just an absolute mess. And then, fast forward a few years, the Assyrians would take over the northern kingdom. And they would basically just deport the Israelites and would spread them out over the ancient empire. Now, remember that point, because we're going to see Nehemiah talk about that, that the people were literally scattered out over the nation, the ancient empire. And it took 136 years later, after the northern kingdom was taken over, that the southern kingdom would fall to the Babylonians. And they would spread the remaining Israelites across the ancient kingdom. And so now God's chosen people, his covenant people, are now scattered across the whole kingdom. Well, in the meantime, the Babylonians have defeated the Assyrians. And Persia shows up on the map and they conquer Babylon. And then we read in 2 Chronicles that the Holy Spirit leads Cyrus, who was a king of Persia. Not part of the chosen people. He leads this king to at least allow a a portion of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. God is faithful. His plan is not to leave Israel ultimately destroyed. And so he uses a Persian king to say, release some of these captives and send them back. Let them rebuild my temple. And so then we get here now. In that, in that, that, that historical narrative, now we're at Ezra and Nehemiah, which are basically running simultaneously. So the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are giving you two different accounts of this, what occurred. One looking at the physical restoration, the other looking at the spiritual restoration. And so we get to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to read that Nehemiah, his role now as an Israelite, he is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He has gone back with the captives. And so now he is a cupbearer to this king of Persia. He has found himself in a really good place. He lives in a swanky palace. And he is about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He is removed from the destruction. He is removed from having to be to see his people oppressed and his city broken down. He is away from all that. He, he is, he's, all, he's in a place where he could just, just, his job is to drink wine for a living in a palace. And, and then we get to what happens in verse 1. And we read how Nehemiah's heart never left the kingdom of agenda of God. It does this to not become about Nehemiah and his role and what he was doing as a job. He didn't care about what his prominence and what he had obtained. He didn't care about the accolades that he had received in this plush job that he had. He cared about the kingdom of God. And I want us to read Nehemiah beginning with verse 1 as he gives us his narrative now in light 
of what we just discovered. So read with me together. The words of Nehemiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So here's Nehemiah. I want to know what happened to my people. I want to know what's going on here. I want to know, you know, I I know, yeah, I'm in this job. You're my brother. I want to hear what happened to our our people. And they said to me, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. It is in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now you have to understand here that this was bad news for Jerusalem. There is great significance in the man from Judah's words when he said the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah, that would register with him. The gate and the wall was the protection for the city. So with it broken down, they are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to attack without the walls and gates. Anybody from the outside could come in and take what they want, do what they want. They had no protection. In Proverbs 25, 28, there's this analogy that is used to describe self-control. And the words that, it, that, 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 that is written in Proverbs says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. They understood it, registered with them what it meant to be a, a city there that was completely vulnerable to outside attacks. Let's, let's keep reading. As soon as I heard these words, it's Nehemiah writing. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Hmm. And I continued fasting and I continued praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, remember this, remember from our history lesson, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah, completely removed from the city of Jerusalem, living the dream, sheltered from the brokenness around him, is broken with compassion for his city. What parallels we can draw from that as a people. He's openly confessing the sins of his people and himself. 
You look at how passionate Nehemiah is for the kingdom of God. His brokenness for the city is, this, is just raw. And he is emotionally broken, broken, weeping, mourning for his people. Said he's weeping and praying day and night for days. Why? Because Nehemiah is in bad shape now and there's, there's going to be ramifications for him because of this? No. He's safe in Persia. But his people, God's people, his covenant people, he sees God's plan being halted. You know, the cupbearer was not even supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. And if he was, he could be punished by death just by coming before the king with sorrow. But Nehemiah is just overwhelmed for his people. As you and I consider the current state of the world we live in, we too, as God's kingdom people, should find ourselves peering into the face of a world that is broken down and ruined. Over 4 billion people, 4.7 roughly billion people in our roughly 7, million, 7 billion worldly population do not know Jesus as the king and savior that he is. So in a world that is vastly unreached, spiritually broken, spiritually defenseless, vulnerable, we must find ourselves like Nehemiah broken for the condition of God's kingdom that he is restoring. And of that figure, that's just people recognized to not be followers of Jesus. This is not, this is people that would openly say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And if we consider the probability that many are lost who would claim Christianity and who are sitting in the seats of a church week in and week out, we see the words of Jesus playing out right before our eyes when he says that narrow is the gate that leads to me and very few will find it. Ultimately, we find ourselves in the same place as Nehemiah recognizing that it is only God that can accomplish this restoration. It is only by God. And in that place, we too should be brought to a place of brokenness and prayer and fasting that God would move for his glory. A good pastor friend of mine and many of us here, Tony Morita, once said that prayer is the predominant ingredient in accomplishing a great work for the glory of God. Prayer. So from this passage this morning, I think that we have to see that before Nehemiah would formulate a plan, which he does, before Nehemiah would proactively move and do a work, which he does, Nehemiah finds himself in his state of brokenness at the only place that he knows to turn, and that is in desperation to God, the only one who can restore. You know, I, we have to ask ourselves this morning, because I have asked myself this week in preparation for this, God, am I really broken for your kingdom? Does it really break my heart that there are people that do not know Jesus? Or is it just something that I casually think about, but I'm just so thankful that I'm found, which we should be. But yet in our hearts, do we really find ourselves peering into the landscape of the world and being broken, 
Because if we don't, one of two things is happening. We have blinders on and we're not seeing the worldview. We're not seeing the kingdom of God that, is, that appears, although we know it not to be true, that appears to be being pushed back by the darkness. Either we're just refusing to see that and we kind of stick our head in the sand and live in our bubble and say, look, everything's good for me, so I'm just going to bury my, my head and just let everything whirl around me. So either we have a limited kingdom view, a limited worldview, or either we have a limited compassion for the kingdom of God to advance. We truly in our heart of hearts don't have a heart for people who do not know this truth. One of those two things has to be happening here because the reality is it's truth. It is, there is a vast majority of people who do not know Jesus. And God has said, you, my church, are going to be the ambassadors to bring the good news to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth begins here with our neighbors and our city and our state and our country. And then the, to all world, all people groups, as we know God's kingdom is defined by him. And it's going to be a people from all tongues and languages. And so we have to ask ourselves, I don't want you to hear this morning, this is just a formula for prayer because the prayer of Nehemiah was birthed in a brokenness for God's promises to come to flourishing. He never doubted the promises of God. He just was begging that God would please bring his promises to pass. And so from this, we see five things this morning that I think are just foundational characteristics of prayer. If we're going to be a people that are broken for our city, that are broken for the lost, that are willing to... to uh, to cause our schedule to get a little chaotic and really to be uncomfortable a bit for the kingdom of God. If we're going to be that people, we have got to begin in prayer. If you look at the movement of Jesus with his disciples after he left, he told his disciples, you're going to go into all the world and make disciples. But he, they begin by praying, by gathering together. And he says, pray and I'm going to send the spirit of God on you. And we see him transform a group of ragtag men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the kingdom is working through them. But they sought God in prayer. When the church in Acts multiplied out and planted the very first church plant we know of throughout God's word, it was birthed out of prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit. And, they, and the Spirit says, set apart these men and go send them out. It all begins and is birthed with prayer. So for you and I to see a movement, like we want to see a movement, if you and I really want to see God advance, if we really want to see God change our, 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 our culture here and not just create this subculture of people which we like, which I like all of you, and, 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 and the, he, we don't want just to see him create this little subculture bunker that we can hunker down in until, until he returns. If we really want to see his kingdom saturate our city and see a paradigm shift, then you and I will beg him to move. We're not going to fabricate that with our charisma and methodologies. It's going to be when his people fall before him in prayer and seek him. So let's see this morning these characteristics of a heart broken by prayer. And let's see what we find from here. And I think there's the one foundational characteristic of prayer is just that, brokenness. Brokenness. Look back at verse 4. As soon as he heard these words, he wept and mourned for days. And he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Look at how passionate Nehemiah is for the kingdom. He is not broken because this means he will be negatively affected. This had nothing to do with a Nehemiah agenda. Nehemiah is broken because he knows, hear this, his brokenness is not just because his friends are hurting and his family and his city is broken. Nehemiah is broken because he knows God's promises for God's people. 
Nehemiah could have easily forgotten the kingdom of God because he was thriving in his own personal kingdom. He had made it. But look at his compassion. It drives him to weep and mourn and fast and pray. When was the last time that tears were shed by you with an angst to see God's kingdom advance? As Christians, in love with God and loving his glory, then we should feel deep sorrow and brokenness when the advance of the gospel is halted. And when we lack that brokenness and we lack that zeal to see the glory of God advance through the restorative word of the gospel and as a community, we will seek then how do we best stir each other up to love and good deeds? How do we best do that? We're broken for people. So we see that and we've covered that quite a bit, but there's a second thing there. And that is not only did Nehemiah was his prayer marked by brokenness, but his, his, his prayer was marked by perspective. His prayer was marked by perspective. He had a elevated view of God. Look at verse five. Immediately after he, 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 he weeps and prays, his first words to God are not, why are you doing this? What is wrong here? He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He doesn't shake his fist at God and say, what is going on with you? He begins by saying, you are a faithful God. His perspective is a kingdom perspective because he says, you are, great are you, God. You are faithful. You honor your covenant. You will not forget your people. I fully know that. He has a kingdom perspective. I love this approach. Despite the fact that it looked like God had given up on his people, he does not accuse God for wrongdoing, but instead he worships. In the middle of a crisis, he is reminded of the nature of God. Now, he makes two statements about the character of God in this prayer that I think reveals his heart. First of all, is that God keeps his covenants. Nehemiah is calling on God to do not something completely out of left field. Nehemiah has studied the word of God. He knows the covenant nature of God. So all he is doing, he's calling on God to do what he promised to do. And Nehemiah knows that God can be trusted in that. Because God always does what is good and right and perfect. That is his nature. But he also says a second thing about God. Not only does God keep his covenants, but God, he keeps steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love. God steadfastly maintains his devoted love to those in which he is in covenant with. So Nehemiah is calling out to God, the one who he knows is faithful. And yet so many times you and I have a very limited perspective. If you think about your, your, your deepest moments of prayer for God, to, to God, we often start with the problem and not with God himself. We place our problem at the center of our prayer life. And we say, God, I've got, I've got to figure this out. This is, this is a, 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 a crisis for my family. So what are we going to do about this? But no, Nehemiah, he comes to this place where he says that, that he recognizes the problem, but he centers his thoughts and focus on God. His anchor. We just sang about that. His anchor, he places that in the only thing that's stable right now because he clings to that. So he has a very right perspective. But then we see a third thing. Not only is he, not only is Nehemiah, uh, is he seeking God through, through this, um, 
uh, through recognizing the, the right kingdom perspective. But the third characteristic is repentance. Repentance. Do you see this? We've not even gotten to the problem yet. The city walls are still destroyed. And yet Nehemiah is pushing through his prayer and he has talked about his brokenness. He has talked about wanting a perspective of seeing God as glorious. And now he comes to a place of just repentance. He, wants, he has a desire to be right before God. Look back at verse 6 and 7. He says, God, we, we as a people, we have failed. My own father's house has sinned. Will you forgive us? Hear us confessing our sins. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept your commandments, your statutes, and your rules. We're the ones that have messed up. And so soon after Nehemiah reminds himself of the beauty of the character of God, he confesses. A proper perspective of God. Now listen to this, because in your prayer life, this is crucial. A proper perspective of God will always lead you to a proper view of your sin. Let me say that again. A proper perspective of God will always lead you to a proper perspective of your sin. Nehemiah sees this. In reflecting on the faithfulness of God, he sees his unfaithfulness. If you, it'll probably be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 6. We don't have, you don't have time to turn there. Let me just read it real quick. Look at what Isaiah did when he realized the glory of God and had a proper perspective of God. <clears throat> chapter 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seating upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two they covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And look what Isaiah says. He has seen a proper perspective of God. And, the, and, and Isaiah says, woe is me. Woe is me in light of who you are. For I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Because why? What's this recognition from? Because he says, for my eyes have seen the king. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me at this place of repentance, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Do you see that a proper perspective of God will lead you to see a proper, proper perspective of yourself and your sin, and you will find yourselves saying, woe is me. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has come, and he has touched us, and he says, you are now clean because of Jesus. Repentance is an aspect of our prayer. Before we go to God and say, you're not fair. Before we go to God and say, what are you doing? This is not like you. May we reflect on his character and realize that who is the unfaithful ones in this relationship? God is always faithful. God is always faithful. So Nehemiah says, before he's even approached the, pro the problem, Nehemiah says, woe is me. But then we see another attribute of prayer. And this is where Nehemiah begins to prepare to make his request to God. And that is number four, confidence. Confidence. Confidence in what? Himself? No. A confidence in the Word of God. A confidence 
in the word of God. Look back at verse eight. He says, remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember those words. Remember your word. God, I'm not asking for anything outside of your will. Remember, let me be reminded right now that you're, I can be confident in that you are gonna do what you said you're gonna do. So you told us, God, you told us that, that if we fall away from you, that you would scatter us away. But if we returned, if we returned, you would gather your people back. And he's praying for the city to be restored. And he says, God, I'm, I'm only calling out to you because I have confidence that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So the, I, we're looking here. The people are scattered. The northern and the southern portion have, have been scattered all over the ancient kingdom. And you said that if we would return to you, Verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, I will gather them in and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That his glory would be the dwelling place of that. We see this. Nehemiah would know these promises. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read this at uh, verse 25. Read on the screen. When your father's children and your children's children and they have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. Uh, verse 20, okay, verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and you will serve gods of stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. He said in verse 30, when you were in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For he is merciful. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Nehemiah had experienced the exile. He had experienced it. He had experienced the results of turning away from God. He was scattered. He was in Persia. And now he is clinging to the confidence in God that he may experience what comes after the exile. That God would restore his people. Though they were scattered, he would gather them back and dwell among them. So why was Nehemiah so broken here? He was broken because he knew the Bible. He knew the truth of God. And he knew that there was a misalignment in what was happening and he knew that if, his, if the people would return, God would be, honor his word. So what do we learn from that this morning? We can learn that we can trust his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. But I can promise you this. He loves you. You, do not, you, you can doubt God's love for you. But even though your circumstances may dictate otherwise, he loves you. You can, you can rest assured that though sin may lead you to a life of, of brokenness until the Lord returns or until you pass to heaven, but I can promise you that he will be faithful to his promises. And though he may not correct your situation or bring it back to, to where you want it to be this side of heaven, he will be faithful to honor what he has done through Jesus Christ. That is how we have a faith and trust in him. That is why we read Hebrews 11 about the list of people who acted in faith and yet some of them prospered, but yet some of them were martyred. That's how we trust in that because God says, I'm going to be faithful, but we must gauge his faithfulness and love and the confidence that we have in his word that he, there will come a day when he says, I will dry every eye. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
I will restore all things unto myself. We trust in that alone. That's our confidence that God will do that. Nehemiah knew that God would honor his promise to his people. So he prayed in confidence. But then there's a last thing. And that is that as we pray and seek him, that we pray in dependence. We pray in dependence. Our dependence is on the abilities of God. Look back at verse 11. Nehemiah is not saying, all right, God, I got a good plan. Send me out. But he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He knew as the cupbearer to approach the king and to ask for things with a remorseful face. Not only to ask for things, but to ask a king of Persia to give what he needs to go to a broken down nation of Israel and have the resources to rebuild a city. Do you see the, the magnitude that he needed God to help in this? He needed to, in fact, to approach the king with a long face. He could have been axed right there. So he prayed to God. He says, God, I, can't, I, have, to, I have to trust and depend on you. I'm dependent on your abilities. He admitted his full reliance on God. We're going to see next week that he makes an ask in chapter 2 that is beyond reason. And Nehemiah knows it. And yet he knows he needs God. When he asked God to give him success, this is the same phrase. If you were to go back and do a word study, when he asked God to give him success, he uses the same phrase that is found in Psalm 1-3 that says about a man who dwells and meditates on God and his word. He says that whatever he does prospers. That same word grouping from Psalm 1 that says, as, we, as I delight in your word and meditate on your scripture, whatever I do may prosper because we're grounded and rooted in the word of God. And Nehemiah is asking the same word phrasing. That God, because you've seen my heart and you've seen my, what I desire and you see the dependency I have on you, I know that I'll prosper because of your hand at work. You know, when I look around at the world around us, if I admit to you, I'm often overwhelmed. You know, we as the church often kind of can sometimes have a savior complex. We feel like we're the saviors. And so we look at our world and we say, man, this is just so, it's overwhelming, God. You know, how are these people going to come to know you? When I look around at those who do not know Jesus, it's easy for me to say, God, I just don't know what else we can do. I just don't, I mean, God, if, if in my flesh, I just, I just, it's just hard sometimes to realize that the gospel can break through to them. It doesn't feel like it. But in that place, we find ourselves back trusting in our own abilities, our own ability to con convince the task is too great. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in a foreign kingdom and God called him to a task to rebuild a city on somebody else's dime. He understood the obstacles, but he trusted. As we approach our city, we must realize that God never intended on his work being accomplished apart from him. So this morning, we draw great parallels to this book. As we look this year at becoming a people of prayer, we survey our world and we see the brokenness. We see that God designed for his glory to be among us, yet we see the world just like Jerusalem, laying in waste and brokenness and abandonment. And in that place, we must find ourselves driven to our knees, that we will see the glory of God as our goal, that we won't supremely approach God so that our circumstances are improved. 
but we approach him because we see his glory in direct contrast with the world that we are in. In recognition of this contrast, we repent. We repent. We are the unfaithful ones. So we find ourselves before God, we repent. He's always faithful to his promises, so we can trust that grace will meet us there. And we pray in confidence. We pray boldly kingdom prayers. It's not prideful or boastful for us to pray that God move mightily among our people in our city. That's his desire. So we pray that proclaiming that God wants his kingdom to advance. And so as we pray that, where it's not about our agenda and our church and our fame and glory, but the advancement of the fame and glory of God, he honors that prayer. He always blesses his plan. God always blesses his plan. And then finally, we find ourselves completely dependent on him. Man, we need him. We need him. If we want to see a work, you know, what we're doing here, we're, we're not just, we didn't just plant a church and we don't just do this, what we do here to make a name and to grow a church. That is a byproduct of desiring to see the glory of God grow among people. So you and I join together, fully dependent on God, that he can bring glory to himself through the work he desires to do in us. So let's pray together.